Good evening. Welcome to Cato Institute. I'm Clark Neely, the Vice President for Criminal Justice uh, here at Cato. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming out tonight uh, to watch the movie of Dogs and Men. Um, there's a, obviously a national debate that I'm sure all of you are aware of uh, about criminal justice and specifically about policing. Um, police work for us, um, and they work on our behalf, at least ostensibly. And so um, in a democracy, uh, we are supposed to have uh, the ability to, to control how uh, our agents uh, work for us and the way they do their job and the way they go about their job. Um, but part of this national debate about policing, uh, I think, is that many people uh, feel that we have uh, lost that control, that police are no longer accountable to the people in the way that we think they should be, um, and that they uh, undertake the job of policing in a way that is um, oftentimes not constructive, and in some cases, uh, neither humane nor respectful of, of people and their rights. Um, I'm not going to say very much about uh, you know, why we chose to, uh, to screen this movie and uh, why the movie was made. I think that uh, all of you are here for a reason. We're going to have a discussion uh, about the movie uh, with the movie's uh, creators afterwards, and we'll have some chance for Q&A. Um, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to impose uh, my framework or um, suggest that there's a particular way uh, to see this movie or to process it. Um, that's for all of you to decide, but um, I think we'll have a very interesting discussion at the end. I want to thank uh, the movie's uh, director, uh, Michael Ozias, who's here with us, uh, and the producer, Patrick Reasonover, here in the front row. Uh, please. <clears throat> um, as you may imagine, they've seen the movie a number of times themselves, so they may get up um, and, and come and go during the movie, but I hope that all of you will stay and watch the movie. Um, I've seen it myself. It is a difficult movie to watch, but I think it's an important movie. It's an extremely important movie um, for us to watch uh, and to uh, have a chance to discuss together. So thank you again to, uh, to all of the folks from, and your production company is Just Add Firewater, is that right? Uh, so thanks to you and your colleagues from Just Add Firewater. Um, we're really excited to have the opportunity to, uh, to screen this movie and to share it with people here in DC. And uh, I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll start the movie and again, uh, at the end, I hope that you'll stick around. We will have a discussion uh, and chance for Q&A at the end, followed by a reception. So once again, welcome to the Cato Institute, uh, and we're happy to have you with us to watch the movie. Thank you. <clears throat> Let's invite uh, Patrick and Oz and Carrie, you know from the movie. So I want to I want to start by telling you that I wasn't looking forward to this movie. Um, it's a very difficult movie to watch, but I want to congratulate you and I want to ask the audience to to join me in thanking you for for making this movie and doing it the way that you did it. This was not an exploitative movie. This is not a movie about um, you know, pointing fingers um, or blaming an entire class of people. Um, I see it as a movie that's intended to uh, bring people's attention to an issue that's not getting enough attention um, and to show that, that it's a complicated issue and there are challenges on all sides. Um, and I think, uh, again, I want to congratulate you on, on presenting such a difficult issue in such a balanced and fair way. So thank you for that. <clears throat> uh, but I'm a dog owner and I grew up with dogs and I can't forgive some of what I saw in that movie, as I suspect many of the people in the audience couldn't. So, um, 
what I'd like to do is, is uh, sort of start a conversation about uh, some questions that, that you know, sort of come to my mind. And um, of course, we'll get a chance to, to talk to the audience or to, to involve the audience in a moment. But one question I'd like to discuss right off the bat. Um, police shoot and kill about 1,000 people uh, a year. Um, and some people might say, uh, isn't that the real tragedy? Why a movie about shooting dogs when a thousand people are killed by police every year? So let's start with that question. Why a movie about uh, police shooting dogs? Well, um, first of all, thanks, Clark, for, uh, for doing this. I want to thank Cato, and thanks to all of you for showing up. Um, courageous, courageous people. We, we actually we tried to make the most optimistic and, you know, version of this story that, that can be told because we do feel like um, there's, there's an optimism to it and it's important. But nonetheless, uh, what one runs into with this is that knowing what it is is, uh, is scarier than what it is, hopefully. I mean, I know it's a rough film to watch, but, you know, people hear about the content and, and, uh, and it scares them off. So thank you. Um, and then, uh, in regards to your question, so uh, I, I think it's fair, and there has been a lot of that, and um, it was it was spiking, people getting egregiously shot all through the production of the film. We were, you know, hearing these stories, so we're uh, we're concerned about that too. But I always just wondered, like, you know, it, it's j just because people die of strokes, we don't stop trying to treat headaches and neurological diseases and stuff like that. It's like just because the worst thing is not solved doesn't mean that we ignore all these other problems. And I also, I, I really think that like uh, one, of the, one of the important things about training and the reason that they hit it so hard, everybody does, isn't, isn't just because it will help them pragmatically handle the situation. The training is important because it's a psychological thing that once it's, it's once it's conveyed to you that your high brass, your department, whatever they want to, they want to train you not to shoot the dog, it sets you on a pathway that leads to many other things where you might even, uh, you might even end up taking a bite downstream that you wouldn't have taken some time before because you've spent a lot of time valuing this thing. So in that same way, I do feel like you could ultimately get to a place where um, that is that after frequent encounters with dogs, maybe even more common than really aggressive people that they're running into, then it starts on some level, once you stop quickly pulling the trigger at the dog, it could go further still. And so you could end up you know, helping the, the human shooting problem you know, by coming at it kind of from the bottom up. Well, also, I mean, <clears throat> you know, what we saw is they're, they're connected perhaps, you know, in the culture. And, uh, you know, frequently, like, because we, when we were making this film, really wanted to have, you know, a police voice and, uh, you know, a victim, uh, you know, animal voice in there. Because the, when we started making the film, we just saw that basically these two groups, like, just hate each other and don't talk at all, you know. So there's no pathway to change when the key people who need to get together in the room and come to some sort of compromise uh, just won't even speak to each other because they, they hate each other. And so... When we're looking at situations where it's, uh, it's people, um, you know, often you'll, you'll see it where they're just, oh, well, you know, it's a high crime area, 
drugs. Uh, you know, they just sort of tell a narrative in their head about the person that got shot that fits whatever their underlying presumptions were. Uh, with a dog, it sort of makes that move very stark because a dog, it's harder to write that in and say, oh, well, bad, bad dog, bad guy, you know, because it's a, we all know it's, it's a dog. And so you sort of have that laid bare. So we sort of saw it as like part of the larger conversation. For me, I think as a dog owner and somebody who grew up with dogs, um, one of the things that was very much in my mind and, and frankly also in my heart is the, um, is the relationship that you, that, that you have with the dog. Um, and it's one of uh, mutual uh, loyalty, right? And there are some things that the dog can protect us from. You know, the dog is probably going to uh, detect uh, an intruder before you do. I, I took, uh, we took our kids camping a couple weekends ago, and we actually had a black bear that came within about 50 feet of our, our tent site. The dog was the one that saw that bear. So the dog put us on notice. Um, but there are other things that we have to protect our dogs from and that our dogs can't understand, things like traffic. And, um, and so it almost feels, I think, that um, uh, we have this obligation, we have this responsibility to, uh, to our dogs in a way that's maybe different than the responsibility that we have to another person, um, at least an adult who can take care of themselves. Um, Carrie, I wanted to involve you in the discussion. Um, one of the things that you've had to fight against, and you mentioned this, um, in the film, and I think uh, it's, it's definitely worth touching on again, is that um, the law tends to treat dogs in a way that is much, or conceive of our relationship with dogs in a way that is much different from the way that most dog owners conceive of that. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. The, the law treats a dog essentially as a piece of property and nothing more, right? Yeah, that's right. So the current notion in most states about animals, uh, whether they're pets, whether they're livestock, is really just that they're chattel. They're, they're no different than this chair or your automobile. And if the chair breaks, somebody owes you the, the $100 that the chair costs. And that's really the end of the discussion in most states in America. And part of, and I'm, I'm proud to say Rebecca Lusk, who was in the film also is here with me, part of our case uh, involved challenging that notion. Because in Maryland, until very recently, there were these caps on recovery uh, that really limited the ability of citizens to make a difference, to bring cases like this and make a difference. And so our goal was, let's move from this sort of agrarian society idea that pets and other animals are merely property, are no different than your chair, and try to point out that today in the real world and in, in our society, these are family members, and, and try to move the law beyond that uh, notion. And so, it, you know, currently, legally, in most states, they're still what we call chattel, they're still property. Uh, but if you can expand the definition, if you can uh, show through, we did it through bringing constitutional claims that there are uh, emotional damages that are involved, that puts the law much more in line with reality. And, and I think I said in the piece, but, but that's really the goal of, of anybody who's doing any justice to our profession, is to make sure that the law, that legal outcomes reflect our current morals. And you know, I think these guys did a, a, a huge service towards making that point and help moving the ball forward. Um, another point I wanted to touch on is the um, difference in kind of the, the standard to which people will be held. Um, let's say that somebody comes onto your property and harms your pet. What I think is so surprising for most people when they don't realize this is that um, despite the fact that we clothe police officers with this tremendous authority and discretion uh, and also with weapons and training, um, you might think that therefore they would be held to a much higher standard 
than an ordinary person who doesn't have the training, who doesn't have uh, all of this authority and discretion that comes from the state. But in fact, the truth of the matter is that police are held to a much lower standard uh, of responsibility than an ordinary person or, for example, a delivery truck driver sure. that came to your property. If you had a police officer come to your property and a delivery truck uh, a delivery truck driver come to your property, they would in fact be held to much different standards of accountability if, if uh, both of them injured your dogs, wouldn't they? And you see the effect of that in the film. Because remember the guy said, I have dozens of dog encounters, I don't have any problems, I don't carry any guns, I wouldn't think of harming an animal. And then he said, because UPS wouldn't allow it, right? Uh, and, but in the democracy that we live in, shouldn't it be that, that the government, that the highest duty that anybody owes me isn't from uh, my fellow citizens, but shouldn't it be from the government that's by, of, and for the people? Uh, you know, and, but that notion is lost in, in the law currently. There are about six different types of immunities that one of us wouldn't enjoy if we were on the other's property and did some of the things we saw in the film. Uh, but the police officers do enjoy those, and they severely hamper uh, the efforts at making a real difference. And that's why their work is so important, because you know, what, we can bring the ball so far in the courtroom, and these guys can come and you know, broaden the discussion. Um, so a question for both Patrick and Oz. Were there any surprises? I, there must have been surprises. Let's talk about some of the things that you learned in the course of making the film. Was there anything that particularly surprised you or, or you, know, you found that you, you changed your mind about things or learned things that you didn't expect in the process of putting the film together? Uh, well, personally, I was surprised when I found out there's cases where um, officers get written up for not shooting a dog. Mm. So it's, um, in terms of, I, I would say over the course of it, it was... Um, it was eye-opening to me to see how, how little the, the system, culture, and everything else is, is supporting them. So nothing, nothing in all of that ever really can get away for me um, from that moment when, when the dog is there, and that's that moment, and that officer pulls that trigger. It's just... Uh, we can't ever allow any system or whatever to, to, you know, to prevent us from, from still looking at that moment and going, that is an individual who made a choice there and shot that dog. But um, I think, uh, it, yeah, I think I was just surprised by, like, by, by, the, by the, the fact that you, that you might get written up, that culturally there would be an attitude that you're, putting everybody else on your squad and in danger because of not, you know, it's like I can just imagine, uh, I can imagine how it feels to, to be in that, um, that situation. So I did, I did find that surprising and sad. <clears throat> yeah, kind of jumping off that, you know, we interviewed uh, Officer Corso. Um, you know, I mean, I guess coming into it, you sort of like see all this footage and you look at the police officers and you think, oh my God, you know, this is terrible. You're a, a villain. Uh, and, then you, uh, and then you see, uh, you know, the nature of the unions, political process, like what Oz is talking about. Uh, but then you meet a guy like uh, Officer Corso and he sort of tells us, uh, it's not, not really in here, but just talking and talking to us that, yeah, if, uh, you know, cops, uh, if officers in your, uh, like, in your department or even, like, in another state do something, like, you know, shoot the dog, shoot a person, uh, 
if you're the guy who's going to say, I don't like they did that, that was wrong, and they were in the wrong, then, you know, you are uh, the enemy, you know, and then so you become the persona non grata, the other cops don't want to hang out with you uh, because you're not really fully on our team. And so to think then, did it sort of recast then the police, in my mind, as, wow, so here's a bunch of guys, they have some bad apples who do really bad things, and uh, they really can't, they're kind of powerless to do anything about it, seemingly. And that was kind of surprising, because I guess it just, it seems like they're very powerful. There are huge cultural issues on forces. That speaks to it. In, our, in one of our cases, the one that's featured here, uh, the officer who takes the shot, they're in the snowy ground, the dog never touches him. Um, the officer who takes the shot had had an earlier encounter, and his earlier encounter had vol involved a miniature poodle that he tased, and he got ribbed about it back at the department. And we were taking his deposition, and he says, well, I decided right then and there, after all the grief they gave me for tasing that poodle, that the next dog I saw, I was going to shoot. You know, and that's why you see in the video, it goes directly for the gun. And, and it's that culture that needs to change. It really does. Yeah, I, one of the things I was going to suggest about why uh, we really should care um, about dogs and, and why, uh, even though uh, we should also care about people being shot by police, um, an interesting difference, I think, is that when it comes to the police, police use of lethal force against people, I am not aware of any cases I can think of where the use of the force was, uh, in a sense, cavalier or simply the matter of being in a bad mood or, or, or you, know, uh, con you know, conscious of maybe being ribbed by somebody one time. Actually, I can think of one case where maybe that happened, but it was, uh, it was a highway chase when a police officer used an assault rifle to uh, shoot out the tires of a, of a fleeing vehicle. Um, and... He, um, he had been uh, given a, a, an evaluation shortly before that where his sergeant said that he wasn't aggressive enough. And he was recorded right after he shot out the tires of this car, causing it to lose control and killing the driver. Um, is that aggressive enough for you? But other than that, generally speaking, whether they're right or they're wrong, police generally use lethal force against human beings when they have a belief that their own life is in danger. That's usually what's going on. With dogs, it seems that oftentimes that's really not the case. Certainly the, the uh, police officers who shoot, uh, you know, patches, the little dog who weighs 15 pounds, there's no possible way, uh, as the woman in the video makes clear, that that police officer was in fear for his life. He was either making a statement or he didn't want, you know, presumably to suffer the inconvenience of having his pants ripped or something like that, but there was no way there was anything at stake going on there. And so I think it, unfortunately, it sort of opens a window uh, on the um, mindset of certain police officers that they will take very lightly the relationship you have with your dog um, while taking very seriously any you know, inconvenience to themselves or even a, you know, unwilling to suffer a minor injury if that's what it takes to save the life of your dog. Is that something that, does that, does that ring true to any of you? You want to talk about that at all? Sure. Um, well, I... Um I think you said in the intro that uh, no police officer has been killed in the line of duty. Um, that you saw the office of the, the actually the police chief from Fort Worth saying that no um, police that, officer has ever been killed by a dog in the line of duty. That, as far that's as we can, right. yeah. that's right. So it's um, and that's worldwide too. Right. Um, and so we, uh, yeah. So I think that it like it's an interesting moment in that toward the end of the movie when the. Um, there's the clip where the, where the guy shoots, the, the officer shoots the dog, and then he goes to the door, and there's a conversation there, and, we hear, and it's, it's transcribed there. But when you, when you listen to that, he's saying, 
He's saying, last time I been bit, I was bit by a dog, I don't want to be in the ER again. Right. And so that's, this is a moment where we're getting at what it's really about. So we get the, you know, we get the, the rhetoric constantly, and, and you know, like the sheriff was saying in there, I'd have a hard time hearing an articulation about this small dog getting killed, but once it's fear, fear, in, fear for, in fear for my life, in fear of grave uh, bodily harm, and then, it, so I, I think what it is, it's, it's sort of like, what always struck me as odd about this from the beginning, and I still don't have my answer, it's, it, it's just the idea that once you go into law enforcement, you do so knowing that it's not a job like clerking at a law office or something. It's like you're, you, you, you take a job with, you know, pavement, fences, windows, so it's just, you're going to get beat up, but you just know that. So when it comes down to the, to getting bit by a dog, I think that just culturally, the way that Americans feel about their dogs are sort of at a place of saying, you know, do I need to take a bite? You want me? Kind of, yeah. You know, if, if all else fails, it's like the fence is going to get you, other things are going to get you. Is it, you know, 12 pound dog? Is that really small dog? I mean, it's like no one, we don't want them injured, but we, but. We, we're, we're, we're worried about where that balance. One of the things that makes the film so interesting, and, and Patrick said it, but, but I want to address your point too. One of the things that makes the film so interesting is in many ways dogs are the perfect innocent victim, right? There aren't any drug dealing chihuahuas, okay? That's, you know? Uh, so it makes a point, but I, I think there's a temptation uh, maybe, and your question touched on it a little bit, but I think there's maybe a temptation to think well, but, but there are drug dealers. There are drug dealing people. And, uh, you know, is it the case that uh, this same mentality doesn't transition over? And so I'm quibbling a little with your, with your uh, premise because I've been practicing civil rights law for 20 years. I've done it in Prince George's County. I've done it in Baltimore City. Those are two of the most difficult jurisdictions in the country for this work. And I can tell you, I can show you uh, dash cam video and now body cam video that is as bad or worse uh, that involve uh, people. So, so, you know, it does happen to people. I think it's attractive to, uh, and maybe provides us with some solace, to think that it's different, what we're seeing here is different from what happens to so many uh, uh, young men and usually young black men. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is, it does happen to people. But dogs do, and the film does a great job of this, show the story in a way in which you know, you're not dealing with a drug-dealing chihuahua and nobody can convince themselves otherwise because it's impossible. Okay? So you can't look at it and decide because of some prejudice that that, you know, that is, is a bad person, the way, unfortunately, a lot of people view uh, uh, society. And I'd, I don't think your question suggested that at all. I don't mean that. But, but nevertheless, that's out there, right? And, and so, uh, you know, to me, that's part of the power of the film is these are, there are no drug-dealing drug chihuahuas, so it isn't going to happen that, that they have that excuse. And this shows you, but it shows you very much what happens in real life, the training, the articulation from the officer, the standards that were repeated, the um, uh, outcomes in courtrooms are all identical. The exact same uh, considerations take place. So, Yeah, I mean, so I think an interesting difference is that um, from the standpoint of law enforcement, 
there is a really significant difference between a dog and a human being. A human being can kill you like that. Uh, if you make a mistake about the person that you're dealing with, whether they have a concealed weapon, for example, um, they may know something you don't. They may know that they have a warrant or they've got something on them they shouldn't have. Um, and we know that happens. We know that, that, sure. that some of these encounters. But the thing that, to me, one of the things that's interesting is an encounter with a dog can never become instantly lethal. Sure. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, and so, you know, we, we may still think that a police officer should have used more restraint or taken a greater risk in dealing with a human being and said, look, I'm not going to shoot until I'm absolutely certain. Um, but they always have a, a, a somewhat plausible, uh, you know, concern that the situation really can escalate. Not just escalate, but become lethal immediately, right? That, I think, is completely missing with dogs, right? And so this idea um, that there's a need to use lethal force, particularly when the use of the, the force itself. You, you change a situation that really just involved the most dangerous thing in that situation was teeth, right? And suddenly you're firing a, a, a handgun or even a shotgun or an assault rifle. That is, inc I mean, just, it, it, you know, uh, uh, orders of magnitude more dangerous than what was just going on. And there was even, in the movie, there was the, the story about the one woman who was actually shot and killed by a police officer who was apparently trying to shoot a dog. Um, anyway, so, so it escalates a situation that might not, other, not otherwise have been a deadly situation. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we, you know, we wanted to focus on the stories, but also wanted to get a sense of, like, why is this happening? What are the causes? And, you know, the causes definitely, uh, I think, are, are co in common, you know? And so, but the difference is the dogs, like, sort of reveal the, the intent or the narrative. You know, so like, uh, I think David, uh, Senator Ballmer discussed this, Radley talks about it, uh, you know, where you have, oh, we're fighting a war. We're going through war tactics, war training. We have war guns. Only we're in America, you know, and the people, the criminals are everyone, you know, every, anyone could be, you know, and I, I think like, that create, that's like a misplaced perception. You know, yeah, that's not I, accurate. And I mean, I think it also tells us a police officer who will shoot a dog at the drop of a hat is not someone you want to encounter during a traffic stop, for sure. example, right? <laughs> it kind of suggests maybe that person's in the wrong line of work. Or at all. Or at all. <laughs> right, right. Um, let's talk for a minute about um, another point that came up in the movie and, and merits, I think, uh, real attention, is, the, um, is how uh, uh, a recording changes the dynamics of what's going on, right? Because you change from a situation where you've got two, three, or more officers um, who are essentially telling the same story. They're backing each other up. Um, certainly, it is, it is the case that under stress, people can have um, you know, uh, different perceptions of how an event went down. Um, but when you have two or three officers who are telling exactly the same story, and then you have a recording that shows that that is not at all what happened, um, that, I think, is one of the most fundamental uh, you know, uh, fundamentally transformative uh, developments in this area. 20, 30 years ago, very few interactions with police are recorded by citizens. Now, it's becoming increasingly common. Um, maybe start with, with, with Carrie. Do you think sure. that's going to change the, 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 the sort of the arc of, of, of these encounters and, and how the law ends up dealing with them? I think it'll change awareness. Okay. I, I, we, what we've seen in the civil rights community is not yet uh, seeing police officer conduct change. And there's a reason for that, and it's, it's, these guys hit on it in their work. Uh, it's training. 
you know, when you are trained that you're fighting a war and that this person's the enemy and that they're deadly and frankly that, you know, anybody can turn into an assassin at a moment's notice and there's a police officer training that somebody can kill you from 21 feet away. It's called the 21 foot rule. Every officer I've ever deposed knows this. That's about from me to this young woman here on the corner and theoretically she can kill me from there before I can do this. And, and so, you know, they're trained that all of us are a savage threat at every moment. And, and uh, that training needs to change. So what we're seeing, I think, as a result of uh, uh, the increase in videotaping is better awareness. I think it's why people uh, have woken up to what's going on in the real world. I'm hoping the training, which has lagged behind, will catch up. I think, you know, the, the tale is really told with the perception of the pit bull, you know, in some ways. You know, so if you're the police officer and you're like suspected drugs, whether there are or not, you immediately walk in looking at the pit bull as a trained attack dog. You know, you carry a bunch of presumptions with you, you know, because of the circumstance. And you, by being there with the guns, have escalated the situation already, unintentionally perhaps, but there you're enacting a narrative. And then you have characterized this dog or person or whomever it is with, you know, your internal presumptions. Well, you don't know the actual reality. You know, you've brought that with you, and that's your view of that dog. But you know, reality might be, you know, I know this dog, or it's my dog. Uh, you know, I know the character of the dog, and so then we both have an interaction in an escalated situation and walk away with completely different views about what happened. Mm -hmm. And we all feel, you know, buoyed by the internal presumptions where we went in. Like those guys who went in and uh, shot Che Calvo's dogs thought that, you know, drug dealers here. We got a package, been delivered. Uh, you know, who knows what we're going to face? And that, like, conditions them going in. And so then they look at those dogs. You have black dogs. They're barking. It's dark. Flash, you know, grenades, guns, threat. Uh, even though that really wasn't the reality. It was just this narrative that overrode it. So the training helps break those presumptions. Um. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the law. Um, I mean, I'm a constitutional lawyer, so I guess I get to talk about the law a little bit. But um, I think one of the real tragedies here is that dogs understand something that Supreme Court justices don't. And that is that um, the Supreme Court treats um, uh, basically a, a law enforcement encounter and being detained by law enforcement as a relatively trivial infringement on your liberty that the state can undertake for essentially any reason. Um, you can criminalize virtually any conduct because of the incredibly low forgiving standard that the courts apply. Um, you know, there are even there's still jurisdictions where it's actually a crime to wear saggy pants that reveal your underwear. Um, there are about half the states in which speeding is not just a civil infraction, but it's a crime. You can be taken into custody. You can be arrested and taken into custody for driving a couple of miles over the speed limit in a number of jurisdictions. That's and the court, the Supreme Court, is specifically. Uh, interpreted the Constitution as permitting that to happen. Put yourself in the perspective of a dog experiencing this as this is happening to the owner. The, owner, the dog sees two strangers manhandling the owner, taking into custody. We actually saw some footage of that. The dogs become very upset and very agitated, um, as frankly would any of us if we saw a loved one being handled in that way. Um, and so in some cases, these tragic situations are uh, set in motion 
uh, by the fact that the courts have allowed the police to essentially do violence to people, to drag people out of their cars for engaging in completely trivial activity, like going a couple mile, miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, and I lay some of this blame, a significant amount of this blame, at the feet of our courts that have interpreted the Constitution as imposing really no really significant limits on the ability uh, of law enforcement to take away your freedom, to do violence to you, um, to drag you out of a car, put you in cuffs in a way that's very upsetting. And how one of the ways we know it's upsetting, look at the reaction of people's dogs. Um, and when they do what dogs do, and one of the things that we love them for, right, which is to uh, try to protect us from that, they don't understand exactly what's happening, um, then the police feel threatened and we can see that oftentimes that unfolds with tragic you know, circumstances. What, what if we had just said, look, like, don't do violence to somebody as a police officer unless it's a, unless it's a big deal, unless it's really worth it. But we don't say that, and the courts don't require us to say that. And I think that they bear some of the responsibility for these tragic encounters. What's so odd kind of about what you just said is, so what if this dog that had gotten shot was a police dog? You know, well, you have just shot a police officer. You know, you go to jail. I mean, there are some states where they really do treat uh, uh, do. violence to a police dog as being akin to violence against a police officer. So when the shoe's on the other foot, they absolutely get it. Yeah, and then there, we didn't, I don't know if we included this, we had footage of like a huge parade yep. that was done for a dog that had been shot. A police, a police dog. police dog. Right. You know, right. so it's, it's so bizarre when these like conflicting mentalities like are in the law and also in the minds of the law enforcement. Right. And it's on the, the legal levers work both ways. And this, as you know, the Supreme Court has moved the uh, standards for conduct of police officers uh, down and for the individuals up. And, and More forgiving for police officers, less forgiving for absolutely. Right. And and then and then in addition to that, your ability to make a difference uh, has been severely limited. So uh, the, the police are allowed to do much more, and you can affect them much less. And that happens uh, through immunities. There are about, as you know, maybe five or six different types of immunities that police officers have that the rest of us don't. It happens through caps on recovery. In some states, in Maryland, for instance, there's actually a cap on the lawyer's fee. So if I do a, a case where I represent a victim of civil rights, like the Jenkins, uh, and it's a, against the state, my fee is capped, and it's well below what's sort of the market rate if it were against a, a, a neighbor who'd, who'd shot the dog, for instance. So the goal is to drive good and talented lawyers out of uh, civil rights work by limiting their fees, even before you get to the fact that that fee is taken out of a judgment, which itself is limited. Uh, I'll give you an example. In uh, We had a, another police dog shooting that, unfortunately, it had, <laughs> They're all unfortunate, but happened after the video. And uh, the jury in that case awarded $1.3 million. Uh, the judge struck it because of a cap to $200,000. The jurisdiction against which that judgment was uh, granted has a budget that equates to about $200,000 every seven minutes of the year. That's what they spent. So imagine if you could kill a dog, violate people's civil rights, uh, and it cost you seven minutes of your salary, or maybe you had to go stand in the corner for seven minutes, you wouldn't feel any pain. You wouldn't feel the need to change anything, especially if change was going to be expensive and meaningful the way this change is. And so the legal system is designed to avoid consequence for the wrongdoers in these situations and in all constitutional violations. Uh, you would think that was 
hyperbole, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about what the reaction has been um, to the film. Um, we can do, talk about that generally, but I'm especially interested in um, the reaction among uh, police officers and members of law enforcement. Um, have you been in a room with, with police who've watched the movie? And if so, what's the reaction been? Has it been kind of monolithic or is it varied or how do they react? Uh, well, I, I, um, it isn't the film in its entirety, but a big chunk of it has been um, used in, uh, in trainings mm -hmm. and we've heard from um, we, we've, we've heard from people who have taken it and shown it. Um, there's a guy named Jack Thompson from the Sheriff's Association and stuff like that. He's shown it to people. It's like directly have not had the experience to sit with a room full of police officers and watch the film. I hope yeah. to get that chance at some point. But, uh, yeah, he said that, um, it, that they're, they're very moved by it. It's, very, it's effective in the training. It's... Um, you know, it's it's interesting that you, there's a very quick clip in here of the Michael Vick uh, thing where they were going to get him, but it's just I've I've since looked at you know some others. It's not that many people running dogfighting rings, but when these things come up, you read these stories. It's like it's interesting to me that it seems like a big group of police officers go into effectively the lion's den of this problem you know, dangerous pit bulls all around. And they, they collect them and they, you know, they bring them out of there. They rescue them. They're, they're like, it's like once, once tasked with the mindset, right. we are here to rescue these dogs. They are the victims of crime. No problem. But when it's like, you know, when, when the mission is something else and, you know, the dog is, a, you know, an inconvenience, a distraction, a threat, however it, however it is viewed or truth. Of course, we know that the officer's own demeanor in the situation can have a significant influence on the behavior of the dogs, right? That's right. So a dog that perceives an officer to be there to take care of the dog it may react quite differently to yeah. the presence of a stranger than a dog that's, you know, uh, seeing a police officer come in with a battering ram or a flashbang or something like that. Um, so we're gonna, we want to get to uh, audience questions. Just real but, quick on yeah, that point. Yeah, it was when we were talking to uh, the, the Fort Worth sheriff, he was saying, when we were trained, we were told, you know, you, you walk in a bladed fashion toward the dog. You do, these, you do these different things. And it was just in terms of comparison and, and contrast in the SWAT case, for yep. example, you're going you're gonna to break through the door, face shield covered, big shield, dressed all dark, being real loud and shining real bright lights. And so it's like, it makes sense. Like if when you're when you're considering human psychology, these tactics are like that we want you to submit. But when you consider that you're breaking into the house, there's also the dog there. Right. How does the dog see that same scene? And right. what are they going there is almost nothing else that you could consider. I mean, you would have to have the world's most zen dog to just sit there and be like, hmm, who's that? I do actually. I don't think she would take that lying down. <laughs> Um, all right, so I want to kind of try this, tie this together a little bit and go back to something we talked about earlier. Um, I think that we need to have a national conversation about the risks that we expect police officers to take. Um, you know, Radley Balco, who's featured in the film, had a, um, uh, I believe in his book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, there was a, a part where he said, you know, um, 
traditionally the motto of most police departments is to protect and to serve, but it seems that in, in recent years, at least some of them have, have developed a different mentality, and that is whatever it takes to go home alone, alive at the end of my shift, right? Think about what a disgraceful thing that would be to hear a firefighter say that, for example, or a paramedic, you know? Or that house bullet. is on fire, my kid's trapped upstairs. Well, you know, whatever it takes for me to go home at the end of my shift, that's not what you signed up for. Or a soldier. Or a soldier, right. That's not the job that you signed up for, right? And, and that's a conversation that we, I think we really need to have uh, with police officers specifically, right? Yes, I recognize that it might increase the danger to your life if you leave that weapon holstered until you're sure that the other person is, in fact, pulling a gun on you. I get that. But I'm, I'm asking you, to, like, I'm insisting that you do that. Right, um, you don't get to, to to you know take whatever action seems most calculated to save your own life. That's not the line of work you're in. Um, I feel like that's a discussion we ought to have, and we're not having that discussion enough. And and this this is relevant both in the context of of dogs, as in this film, also in the context of all of the uh, uh, the shooting of unarmed uh, people that we've seen just in the last couple of years. It's been a tragic number of those. Um, uh, maybe not every single one of those is unjustified, but it's certainly in, in at least some of those. If we had made clear to those officers, look, we expect you to take a greater risk and to be absolutely certain that your life is in danger before you fire at somebody. And, and the, it can't be a cell phone. And the training has to realistically assess the risk. I'll give you an example. Um, historically, police work hasn't changed much, right? You have to train people how to use new technologies, but tasers, that kind of thing. But on the beat, speaking to witnesses, investigating crime is, is pretty much the same as the last 100 years or so, which is really bad news if you run a company that trains police officers, right? Because, you know, teaching somebody when to fire a gun against somebody with a gun hasn't changed probably for 50 years. Uh, teaching somebody how to investigate hasn't changed. So what do you have to do? You have to come up with new threats so that you can tell the chief, hey, there's this new threat. Now they're, the bad guys are doing this. And what that causes is an escalation in the perceived threat to the officer, because then that's how they're selling through fear tactics, the training. And the officer's uh, perception of threat is driven by that training. There's a training module I saw which says if you have a traffic stop and you pull the person over and everything goes fine and they're perfectly cooperative and pleasant and it was a big mistake and, and there's no problem at all, on your way back to your police vehicle, in your mind, you should imagine the worst case scenario. Imagine that instead that person had pulled a gun and fired at you at that moment and shot you in the back and all the worst things that could happen. And the intent of that training is to reprogram you to perceive much greater risk than actually exists in the world. Uh, and it's done on purpose, and that's what causes this great rise in, in police violence that we see. And it really is a training issue. The vast majority of police officers, the vast majority, and I sue them for a living, but the vast majority are wonderful people, great people. And just like Patrick said, you know, these, these are folks that were following the rules, that were doing what they were trained to do. And if you trained them to do the right thing, to correctly perceive risk, you'd solve that problem. Well, also, like that, they're a Gwinnett County, but uh, we were not able to get uh, Atlanta PD on camera, even though we were there, and you know, because they had shot the dog. Mm -hmm. But the lady uh, who, uh, like, one of the officers at Atlanta had, you know, had been in communication with us for like some months trying to make it happen. Um, and uh, yeah, shortly thereafter, they uh, reached a settlement uh, with that couple. And then, uh, yeah, we didn't even know, but she just had taken some chunk of our movie and was playing it for all the new officers as a part of training that she had come up with. And uh, she was telling us that, you know, what was great about it is, uh, number one, uh, it may be a surprise, 
but uh, a lot of police officers uh, didn't grow up with dogs and look at them like a snake. It's like a snake, you know, it's a snake. How many times is a snake gonna kill you? I mean, I don't know, probably low, but I am still afraid of snakes, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, so that, there's that. So, but then they're horrified when they see this. They're like horrified that that could happen, but so they never thought about it. You know, when you're off in a situation where I never thought about it, then maybe you wind up pulling the gun and shooting the dog, but now you've thought about it. And then she had some debates go on. It was like, well, I don't know about this one or that one. And she just thought that that was a really great thing because uh, now that guy, who'd maybe definitely been predisposed, was like, it's a dog, I'm going to shoot it, you know, uh, was now sort of thinking about it, yeah. you know. And, uh, and so it works. Yeah, well, I think the film certainly ends on a note of, of optimism. This problem is not going to go away, but we, can, we, we certainly um, understand that we can make it better uh, and, and that training matters and culture matters. All right, so we have a few minutes for audience questions. Um, we've got some microphones. Um, do me a favor and um, uh, identify yourself, uh, state your affiliation if you care to do so. Um, and uh, it is a very emotional issue. We all understand that. Um, but as a courtesy to everybody here, do make sure that your question is, in fact, a question and ends with a question mark. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm Deborah Weiss, and I have an affiliation, but I'd rather not state it. <laughs> um, I know. It doesn't pose as much of a threat, but since we saw examples where the cops like went in and <coughs> the dog in the back room, I'm wondering, do they do this with cats also? <coughs> and the second yes. thing is, why, you know, I didn't understand why they always had to go for, for the head and kill it. I mean, if you're worried it's going to come, why couldn't they just shoot the leg? And so it couldn't run and it would still be alive. It doesn't work that way. Police officers are taught to shoot center mass no matter what they're shooting at. And center mass means... They're, they're taught to shoot center mass because gunfights are not as precise as you think they are. You're trying, you're, you're trying to put the bullet in the center of the target that you're shooting because the way gunfights work is that most of the rounds are going to miss. You, it is total, it's a total fiction that you can aim for a leg or a head. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Also, That's, the bullets ricochet. Mm -hmm. I hate to ask, can I just add one last thing? The, how often do you think that they really just... I thought they were very generous in attributing motives, like, oh, it's the training, it's the training, it's the training. I don't remember the dog's name, but obviously the one in the garage, that, that couldn't have been the training. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, how many of them just don't give a damn or worse? Well, there was no training for that guy. And then when we showed that clip to, like, the Officer Corso and some of the others, they were just like, man, you know, he's really just not doing what he's supposed to with a gun. He's not standing right. Uh, you know, like he's just really not doing what he should be doing, and they just said that's just the that was just the case. You know, I think Jim Osorio weighed in on that. He was just sort of like, well, there's just really, it's like there's it goes beyond like, oh, well, they have the dog on the pole. Uh, it's just sort of like, well, you really shouldn't be uh, pulling and shooting your gun in an off balance, back footed way, uh, like he sort of does. Uh, so that was what we heard. We, I can give you some numbers. So I had a case in uh, Anne Arundel County, Maryland. They had done no training at all of police officers. Uh, it was a terrible dog shooting. The officer in that case was one of the few 
people you're talking about who don't give a damn. They are very few, okay? It, and it's like any other profession, there are jerks in the profession, okay? There are lots of jerks in my profession. I'm a lawyer, okay? Uh, but but it, it, it's, not the, it's not a job requirement like most people think it is to be in my profession. It, it, but it's very few who are bad people in, poli in policing. They exist, very few. In Anne Arundel County, we had a case. There'd been no training, okay? Uh, the officer was one of the bad people. But as a result of that verdict, they went and retrained the whole department. So here are the numbers. In the five years prior to our case, they shot 27 dogs. Of the 27 dogs, only three had been in even any contact with anybody. So these aren't dogs that are biting people or doing anything. Um, uh, so in the four years after our case, after the training, starting with the training going four years forward, not a single dog was shot. So statistically in that space, we saved probably 20 dogs, okay? So, so, and what I think that tells me is, that's not a department full of jerks. I think what it tells me is that it's a department where there is training that is needed uh, and education. Are there jerks there? Absolutely. There are jerks in every profession. And, and you know, part of our job is to create a very high cost and, and hunt the evil people down out of the profession and rid it of them. But then secondarily, we see that to affect greater change really requires training. And, and that's the vast majority. Good point. In the front row here, sorry. Front row, sorry, third, fourth row. Oh, huh. My name is Porter Enstrom. I'm an intern over at the Institute for Humane Studies. Um, I really appreciate the balanced view that is shown throughout the film, and I think we need a lot more of that nowadays, especially to bring both sides to the table. But um, I did want to ask, what do you guys believe is the largest barrier from achieving bills like the one passed in Texas in a state like Georgia, where it failed at the Senate? Um... I think the I think the failures are just when people you just have to have the people on the same page, the right people, and what we've been seeing and what we were observing before the we made the documentary uh, is that is that what was happening was a really ugly incident it was happening in a local area. It was getting a lot of attention in that area locally that got people stirred up. They asked for, you know, calling up their, their police department, asking what's going to be done. There are, you know, lawsuits, all kinds of public relation, et cetera, et cetera. And so in a little locality, one locality at a time, the, the situation was improving, but only it seemingly needed something uh, terrible to happen at the outset. So once you, once, once you get into a situation like in Colorado and you had... Uh, Ava was Colorado, and Chloe was Colorado, and these, you know, particularly in Chloe's case of that video, so a lot of attention, and so then it gets, and even with all that, you saw what David Vollmer said he had to go through uh, to pull it off. I, I personally think that we, we have got a lot of people, obviously a lot of sentiment out there about, you know, cops are evil. And then post 9-11, or people, cops can do no wrong. As Carrie was saying, there's the idea that the dog is is the table, uh, is the same. We also hear this uh, this kind of framing of the dog owners, like uh, you know, like Clark was saying. It's we think of them as family. It's in the film, but they don't think of them as the same as a child and should be. You know, 
dog drowning, human child drowning. Well, save the dog. You know, no one's saying that. So it's like, so there's these big things that are just wrong, and there are obstacles, but they're huge. And it seems like when you get rid of that stuff and you get just reasonable people sitting, sitting at the table together, we've seen progress in Fort Worth, um, the Dog Protection Act, anywhere we've seen it uh, really work, it's always been at a certain point, the, the police and the concerned citizens have to get to the same table and do something together. Otherwise, it's, you're not going to get very far. Your rights are always harder to claw back than they are to protect while you have them. That's what you have to remember. And, and these are efforts to claw back rights that we've lost. I think also you see the importance of uh, guys like Jeffrey Justice uh, as an activist. I mean, I'm not a guy who goes out and protests. I don't think I've ever been to a protest in my life, maybe once. Uh, you know, and sometimes tend to look at people who are protesting or holding up signs as kind of crazy. Uh, and I don't want to be involved in it. And don't talk to me. <laughs> and no, I don't have a cigarette. And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, we talked to Neil Franklin, uh, uh, who appeared in the movie. You know, he really just stressed the importance of this. You know, oh, well, when you're out there protesting, it's irritating. You know, it's just irritating. And if you are irritating for long enough, then, you know, and you'd build the coalition, like with the, with the, you know, reaching out to the police organizations and working with them, uh, then you can create a coalition and go and do something collaboratively. What, so the big hope for the movie was simply, let's take these two people, or two sides, who absolutely do not want to talk to each other and think the other side is the devil, and try to get them to sit down and watch both sides of the perspective, and then maybe agree on a pathway forward. Um, one thing I just as a sort of a public service announcement it's important to understand is um, sometimes you'll hear from police and prosecutors, I don't make the laws, I just enforce them. That is utterly, utterly false. Probably the second or third strongest lobby in the country is the law enforcement lobby. Um, the Department of Justice, just a couple miles over that way, has an entire uh, division called the Office of Legislative Affairs that is an in-house lobbying shop. Uh, and so the idea that law enforcement just sort of st stands around waiting for laws to be produced then goes out and enforces the ones that get passed is completely false. Um, I'm not saying that individual police officers do or don't agitate, but as a community, they absolutely affect uh, and, and, and go out of their way to influence um, what laws get passed, what laws get repealed, and so forth and so on. So if you ever hear a police officer or a prosecutor say, I don't make the laws, I just enforce them, um, put aside whether that's true as to that individual, but as to that vocation, that is completely false. All right. Excuse me? Do you have a question? Anybody else have a question? Hi. Uh, Jeremy Burkhart, no affiliation. Uh, I was wondering, in these cases, in these shootings, uh, is there ever any action taken against the officer for basically the unsafe use of firearms? Um, because it, we saw in the video where there was a, the bystander that was killed, uh, but also in, in cases where there you know, wasn't a bystander killed, you know, the, the, you can kind of see the police officers in like a semi, semicircle or a circle, and they're firing across the circle, um, putting their fellow officers in danger, uh, other civilians. I was wondering if you ever see any cases where the department's discipline the firing officer for that, or maybe in a lawsuit they use the unsafe use of the firearm as evidence of the inappropriateness of the act. 
Well, one anecdote, I don't know, you guys have really answered this better, but one anecdote was uh, in Fort Worth, uh, also I don't think we have on there, uh, but that uh, police chief told us just that, uh, you know, listen, I'm police chief, so you think that I'm like all-powerful God, you know? Oh, this guy uh, shot a dog, raped a woman, I am going to fire him, you know? He's like, I could fire him, and then the police union is going to work to ultimately get him reinstated. Uh, so I th his, so he said his approach was, well, I'm not going to fire you. I am going to put you in a situation in your job that you are going to hate, such as like you're at your desk or you are going and doing some mundane thing that you dislike, uh, which was his way of handling the jerks sure. because he knew that the process is just so fraught with these, you know, it's like the individual police officers are, probably have no idea what's going on at that Office of Legislative Affairs. Um, you know, there's just bigger forces at play. And so um, I know that there's probably that going on. Parking officers happens a lot like that. They, it, usually it's something called the telephone reporting unit, and they just take calls from people, the 311 calls with the cat stuck in a tree, and they do that all day. Uh, the problem with that approach, of course, is that that officer then leaves eventually with a clean record, and he goes to work for another department. Okay, and, and when he goes to that other department, he's not in the TRU, he's now on the street with a gun again. Uh, I have not seen, and I have done, I have four dog shooting, five altogether uh, dog shooting cases. A couple have video, and they all involve either a ridiculous circle of people shooting across at each other, or in many cases, because dogs by and large are, are either think they're protecting the house or they're coming from the house or coming from a yard, in many cases the officer is shooting towards the house. Nine times out of ten, the house is occupied. Why? Because the dog wouldn't be in the yard, wouldn't have been let out, the door wouldn't have been opened, but for people being occupied and the officer wouldn't be there in most cases unless he thought people were in the house for whatever reason. So what I see a lot of is officers shooting towards the house. We have cases where uh, uh, the bullets that missed, because you do, uh, it is very hard to hit that small a target, especially a moving target, uh, are embedded in the house, you know, in the wall, inches from where people were sitting. So this isn't just a, you know, a risk to the animal, it's also a risk to the human beings that are around. Uh, and police officers are trained to take that into account and should be disciplined. By and large, they aren't. In the cases I mentioned, there's not a single one uh, where the police officers have been disciplined. I have one jurisdiction where they shot a dog, the dog lived. I sent notice of a lawsuit, which I have to do in Maryland. Three weeks after they received it, they came back, shot the dog, and killed it. Uh, when they came back and killed it, they said they were delivering some property back to the people. So the people said, well, we'd like our property then. And they said, oh, yeah, shucks, we forgot it. We were just here with our guns. So, and those officers just got cleared for doing that. So that's, you know, it, my experience with internal uh, uh, police review is that that process is broken. So that's all the time we have. I think we're going to have to end on the sort of glass half full, glass half empty note. But I want to thank Oz and Patrick again for uh, really putting together a, an incredibly important uh, and, and well done film. So thank you.